0: Um, I can't make this up. So Olivia and I have chickens, um, and we love them a lot. Olivia loves them a lot more than I do. I just kind of take care of them um, and do all the work. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> you know what? You, men, if you get chickens, don't let your wives clean up chicken poop. That's your job, okay? She gets to love them and enjoy them and have have, the, have all the good stuff, and you get to take care of the chicken poop, all right? That's your job. But we have chickens, and we often let them out in the yard and just let them roam during the day because... Um, you, know, you wouldn't want to be stuck in a cage all day, you know? Instead, just set them free in a bigger fence all day is what we usually do. And I had this dream last night. I'm not even joking. Like, usually, like, it sounds like I'm just making a story up because I'm preaching, but I, sw- I promise I had this dream last night. And it was like, great! I get to tell everybody about a dream I had. Um, so we're coming home. We're pulling into our driveway. This is in the dream. This isn't in real life. Um, and I see the chickens in the yard. We have six chickens, but I see seven birds in the yard, okay? Go to the yard. I'm like, what is that other bird? And it's a bigger bird, scarier bird. It's got a longer beak, scarier beak. And it's just like walking around, looking at all the chickens like, like, hmm, this is going to be good. I cannot wait to get my claws on some of these, or talons is what they call for hawks. It was a hawk. Um, spoiler alert, it was a hawk in amongst my chickens. Um, and I could tell that it was getting ready to to make its move, to kill one, to eat one, to, to destroy it. And, um... The only way I can I can give you this picture is it's like an elf when Buddy asks Michael for the extra snowball at the end and you know like he's like snowball and then Phew, hits the guy, you know, it's pretty legendary. Olivia standing next to me and I say football, you because know, it's it's Thanksgiving weekend and, and lots of football on, lots of playing football hurt my knee, it was a great time. Um, but and of course my wife just carries around footballs all the time. Because that's football is life, you know. So I said football and nailed the bird. It was awesome. Bird flew away. I saved my chickens' lives. Yes, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Heroic act. And actually, I, we continually save our chickens' lives. The chickens can't live without us. If, if we didn't feed them, if we didn't give them water, if we didn't lock them up at night, they would die. They would either die of starvation, die of, of uh, being too cold. They would die by getting eaten by a fox, which I actually did, not even joking, see fox Footsteps in our alley yesterday um, from the snow, which is pretty cool, but also scary. Good thing I locked my chickens up. But the chickens would not live if I didn't save them. If I didn't continually save them, if I didn't save them in that moment with my heroic act of being able to throw, I can spin that thing, man. I just like, Pew, like nailed it. Um, but they needed, sa- they, need, they needed my saving, and they need our saving. And we, like humans, or like chickens, we need saving. Often now it's much different, you know. We don't. We we can work and provide food for ourselves. We can. We 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 know that we have to put clothes on in the morning. We know that we have to go to school to get an education to get a job. We know all that kind of stuff. Like we can take care of ourselves, but we have this innate need, desire, this heart hole in us that needs wholeness, that needs life, that needs real like something to actually pursue and go towards, Um, and. Eternity is in our hearts. Eternity is our destiny, and we're going one place or the other. And we need saving, and God saves us. It is our greatest need, is God's salvation. And I want you to see that this morning. This is our greatest need. We try and, and find our wholeness. We try and find salvation. We try and find purpose in many other things in life, and I, I know you've experienced it, so I don't really need to list it out, but in your job, in, in your hobbies, whatever it is, you try and attain this wholeness, this saving of yourself, on your own. And we, the truth is that we just can't. Um, and if you look around, if you look in the world, you can see that our world needs saving. You can see there's lots of hurt. There's lots of people on Thanksgiving that didn't eat with their family. There's lots of people in the world right now that are facing persecution for their beliefs. There's lots of people in the world right now that are dying because of unjust powers that have control over their lives. If you just look around in the world, you can see that we need saving. Humanity needs saving. If you look at yourself, if you look around you. You can just think for a second. You know that we need to be saved. And the story of Christmas is the story of God sending his son so that he can save us, so that he does save us. Amen? Amen. All right, thank you. We'll participate today. So we are in our Advent series of of the Advent songs, and throughout the um, Advent account or the account of Jesus' birth and all the things around it, there are multiple times where people sing or they exclaim um, a poetic um, praise to God, and we're going to dive into a bunch of those. In our passage today, we're going to open to the first chapter of Luke, and just to set the scene for a second... The last time God had spoken to his people, that he had spoken through a prophet or shown anything or done anything, it had been at least 400 years, probably more, until now, until the birth account of Jesus when, he, when God sends angels to speak to people, and the angel Gabriel to predict Jesus' birth, to predict the, John, um, the birth of John the Baptist. Um, it had been over 400 years. And so likely God's people are asking things like, has he forgotten about us? Where did he go? Will he save us? Will we be saved? Will he stay true to his word? Are we doomed? Have we strayed too far? Will God say or do what he said? The good news is Yes, and he. I'm going to give a little background on Zechariah. So Zechariah is a priest who serves in the temple. And while he's serving in the temple, earlier in the chapter, an angel comes to him and tells he, Zechariah and his wife are old. They're old people, um, and, the, and, and they've wanted a child, but they've been barren. They haven't been able to have a child. And an angel comes to him and says, God is going to give you a child, and he will be a prophet of the Most High. It will be John the Baptist. He, he is... Um, so, so by miracle, Zechariah and his wife are able to have a kid, and it will be John the Baptist, and this will be a prophet to tell um, about Jesus before Jesus comes. He's basically like, uh, I usually do announcements and, and tell you guys about church, and then, Jesus, and then um, Caleb comes. So like the guy before the real guy is, is, is who John the Baptist is. Um, <laughs> Uh, I have a great boss, and he takes takes a lot of jokes whenever I get up here. Um, this is where I have to do it, because I can't do it face-to-face. <laughs> uh, but John the Baptist is the guy to come before the real guy. He announces of God's salvation to come, and and God blesses Zechariah and his wife with this baby, John the Baptist. Zechariah responds... With, with disbelief. They've been asking for him, they've been asking for God to bless them with a kid, yet when an angel, an angel of God comes and tells them they're gonna have a kid, he reacts with disbelief. And so then God punishes him and makes him silent, mute, until the baby is born. So for nine months, Zechariah is silent and where we are at in scripture is when Zechariah can finally break his silence and he bursts in praise for God about the coming salvation that God is about to carry out starting with John the Baptist. Okay, so there's the scene. Let's jump into the actual scripture. Oh, that TV's not working. Oh, there we go, Zechariah's song. Read along with me. I'm going to read from my Bible since that TV's not working. So if you would move the slides as I read through, that would be great. Then his father Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. He has given us the privilege, since we have been rescued from the hand of our enemies, to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. And you, child, talking about John the Baptist, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us, to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace it's good stuff so this is after a 9 month long stint of not being able to talk and some scholars even say he wasn't able to like even hear like communicate so all he could do is stew in the word of god and he's like i said he's a priest so he knows all of god's commands all of god's promises and he all he all he gets to do is enjoy And 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 think about God, and this is His burst of praise when He is finally able to speak, and He speaks on and celebrates God's salvation and describes how God has saved us. And so today we're going to look at in this passage how God has saved us, because that is our greatest need. And if you are a Christian, maybe this is has like you know this is old news, yeah. I've been saved, Um, but. Zechariah was a priest, an old priest who served in the temple and he was in his late years of life celebrating God's salvation to him. And so let's reflect on God's salvation to us today. First, I make the argument that he saved us presently and I don't mean... What I mean by presently is that he came in person. God was born. Jesus was born as a human. He came as a person. It says he has visited. It says in his presence. We get to serve him in his presence all our days. And it says that the dawn from on high will visit us. I originally had um, green highlighting those red words for the Christmas theme, but it's okay. Um, But he has saved us presently. These are all statements that in more ways than one would have been surprising, would blow the minds of the people of the day that are hearing this. In this case, so God, so God, the people that knew about God knew um, things about God only from the Old Testament perspective. They, Like I said, it's only been four year, 400 years since they'd heard from God. But as I mentioned earlier, what's going on here is some is the, some of the first time that people are listening or, or hearing of an active God um, for four hundred years. They know God as revealed in the Old Testament and thought of him as, and the thought of him as being a present face to face God would have probably in a way scared them. Would have struck fear to them. And here's why. So if we look back to Moses when Moses met the Lord, he hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then years later. He begged to see God's glory, and God told him, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. When the ark of the Lord was being brought back to Israel, some people looked inside of it, and as a, as a result, God killed them. The people despaired. Who is able to see the Lord? Who is God? When David was bringing the ark to Jerusalem, one man touched it. God struck him down. David himself was afraid of the Lord the day he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? The nearer that Ezekiel approached the, approached the throne of the Lord, the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, when he saw it, he fell on his face. He couldn't handle it. God, in person, after the fall, after the, God's perfect creation had been damaged, and if you don't know anything about the fall, go back to our um, series from the summer where we go through the grand narrative of Scripture. But post-fall, God in person was a scary thought. I could die in the presence of God. God doesn't look at me. I can't look at God. I can communicate with him. I can go to my priest and experience him. I can give sacrifices to him. He makes miracles happen for me, but I can't see God. And if I see God, I'm going to die. But God came in person. God in person was not the norm, the expectation, or even the way they comprehended it, the hope. Because if you see God, you might die. But Jesus came as a baby as a real person, someone who puts his pants on one leg at a time, just like you and me. God, who people knew to be spoken of, prayed to, sacrificed to, seemingly untouchable and unreachable in this respect, is now present. He's saving us presently. This kind of makes me think of when I was a little kid, uh, in my, I was scared of the dark or scared of, I would have nightmares just like any little kid does. Um, and in my room, I had my toys. I had transformers. I had, um, posters of superheroes. I had posters of football players. And whenever I would think of something scary, like, like we had this Chucky movie and I, whenever I would see the DVD, when I'd pass the shelf, I'd be like, oh no. And then I'd have nightmares or I couldn't fall asleep because I'd be thinking of it. So I'd have to like do this when walking by the movies. If I forgot, and I couldn't stop thinking about these scary things. I would just think of how I'm surrounded by all these, all these transformers and all these superheroes and, and Randy Moss. Like, and all these people, if I was being attacked by Chucky or whatever other scary thing it was, would come to life, would come in person and save me. That's kind of the feeling that I think these people like, feel in, in this, uh, with this message. is that like, The God who I can't see, who I can't be in person with, who I would die in person with, is, is here is with me. He is a real person. Last year when I was preaching on, on, um, in Advent, I, I made the argument that it happened. It really happened. And God is a real person. He came as a baby, was born as a baby. And this has lots of impl- implications for us. And, and I, don't, I don't think it's helpful always to look at scripture and, and think, how do I live you know, in light of, of what God did, but this definitely, the incarnation, the fact that Jesus came as a human and we are humans means that we should probably model our lives how the best human ever lived, okay? So I just have three implications from that. First, the incarnation or the, the becoming of a human from God means that we live in the world, but not of it. Jesus prayed for his disciples. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world just as I am not of the world. In other words, we pursue holy lives of obedience and sacrifice as we engage the world around us because of the incarnation, because that is what God did. That's what Jesus did. Second, the incarnation means that we seek opportunities to deny ourselves. Self-denial is not popular. It's not easy. It's not ideal to us, but it is the starting point for growth in our faith. When Jesus became incarnate, he voluntarily denied himself the privileges of being God to experience life on earth. He denied himself. And so because of the incarnation, we now follow his lead in denying ourselves. Third, I argue that the incarnation means that God is for us. God loves us. God is about us like we are people that he wants that he likes. Paul wrote, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's in Romans 8. And this statement lives within the reality of the incarnation. When Jesus left the side of the Father to become man and accomplish our salvation, he left the godhead and all the privileges thereof to die to experience human life. He lived a humiliating and self-denying life to bring us to God where there are pleasures forevermore with. So when we live in light of the incarnation of Christ, when we apply these things to our lives, and there's so many other things that we could model after Jesus. These are just big ones. Our lives will be shocking to other people. Although we are sons and daughters of the king of the world, we will humiliate ourselves by serving others. All things may be permissible, but we will deny ourselves certain things or activities so that we can grow in our love for God and others. We will earn money, but we will strategize how to give it away for the kingdom. Living in a physical world, we will spend more effort on cultivating our inner beauty than our outer beauty. We will trust in the promises of God more than our circumstances because we know he is for us and that we ought to model our lives as the incarnated God who came to us. So God, like, like so Jesus was God, is God. Jesus sat at the right hand of God. When God created things, he was sitting next to him. When he enacted things in, in the Old Testament, he was sitting right next to him. He is a part of the Godhead, and this is why this incarnation is a shocking miracle. In Christ, God had revealed himself in person. Our holy God, who told Moses, for no man, or for man shall not see me and live, became incarnate. God, people, people saw him and lived. Our God, who struck down a man for touching the ark, in another, another 50,000 for looking at it, became incarnate. People spit upon him and lived. Our holy God, whose throne was so magnificent that Ezekiel failed to find words to describe it, became incarnate. He was born as a baby in a manger, not come down on a throne. God who asked Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, became incarnate. He was born in an insignificant little town and worked as a mere carpenter in Nazareth. God who was known by signs and by the speaking of the word and of the miracles, the word became flesh for the sake of redeeming his world. That is the message of Christmas. I once heard someone say, you will never, in the Christian life, we will never be more uncomfortable than a perfect God making himself wholly a part of an imperfect world. I don't remember who said it, but I, I didn't make it up, so I had to put someone on there. Okay? So God has saved us presently. He came as a real person. Second, I make the argument that he saves us powerfully. In 69, he says he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. This has been one of the coolest parts about preparing the sermon has been reflecting and, 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 see, and seeking what, what God means by this. And, and it's not an instrument. It's not. This is what I first thought. It was like, like the announcement, which is what John the Baptist did. But this is a legit Im- image to me. Jesus, as the horn of salvation, is being represented as like the deadly weapon of a wild ox. This is the only place in the New Testament where he is called a horn. So we have to go back to the Old Testament, where Zechariah definitely got the image from. So in Psalm 92, 9 and 10, he gives us a picture for what the, the horn stood for. Um, for indeed, Lord, your enemies, indeed your enemies will perish all evildoers will be scattered. You have lifted up my horn like that of a wild ox. I have been anointed with the finest oil. The horn is a sign of strength and a means of victory in the Old Testament. In Micah 4, God says to Jerusalem, arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples. I feel like lately Caleb's made a lot of jokes about me being from Kansas. Um, i wear that badge with honor. Um, and growing up in Kansas, I had some friends who had ranches, who had farms, and being around just even a, a regular bull with these crazy horns was intimidating. Even even with a, a fence in between you, these guys had big old giant horns that by just like sneezing could destroy me, could, could end my life. These are crazy wild beasts um, that have immense power. Look at those horns. Like, I'm not, I mean, I'm not going up against that. None of us are going up against that. And guys that get on bulls and... Let them buck them around? I guess that's what boats are float. They're like, cool. But that's powerful. It's a picture of power. Verse 70 says that the coming of this horn of salvation was spoken by the mouths of the prophets. One of the clearest examples is in Psalm 132. Again, David said there will be a horn, a sprout for David. The image must be read and understood in relation to God, though. He is the one who is strong and he is the one who gets victory over the enemies of his people. Therefore, it's not surprising that the only two instances of the phrase horn of salvation are only in reference to God, the horn of salvation. In uh, 2 Samuel and in Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation. So God in this instance, in the psalmist instance, is his defense and his offense. God is the only one that has the power. God is the only one that can defend us, and He is the only one that can have victory for us, victory for His glory. And that brings us now back to our passage. Jesus yeah. is the horn of salvation because He is a dead, He's being pictured as a deadly weapon with tremendous power, which, according to verse seventy-one, God uses to save His people from their enemies and all who hate them. Zechariah means primarily that the Messiah will one day literally destroy his enemies and gather his people into his land and rule them in peace. And yes, he will when he comes a second time. But Zechariah's words necessarily imply more than that here. If we read on in verse 74 and 75, it shows that the goal of God's redemption and raising up a horn, this powerful weapon of salvation in Jesus, is to grant that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days of our lives. God's aim in raising a horn of salvation isn't merely to liberate an oppressed people, but to create a holy and righteous people who live in no fear because they trust him, because they know he's the all-powerful one, because they know he is victorious, because they know he is their defense. This means that the redemption spoken of in verse 68, the redemption that we see here, the salvation that we see here, must include like redemption from our fear, redemption from the the fear that we have to live our lives, to live the Christian life like I illustrated earlier. If the goal of God's redemption is to be achieved by him raising up a powerful savior, a weapon of salvation, then the gathering of a people who are fearless and righteous, the goal is that he would gather people who who are fearless and righteous because of his power, not because of our power, not because of our confidence, but because the power that he has displayed in his salvation. Our God is almighty, all-powerful. He's conquered our enemies, namely the world, the flesh, and the devil, and we can live free of fear of these things because of this. Often at Christmas time, I think that we get too narrowly focused on just the baby, the cute little baby in the manger, you know, 8-pound, 10-ounce baby Jesus. But, that's a quote, but this cute little baby is the literal pound-for-pound pound champion of the world. Like, nobody can beat him. He is the horn of salvation. He is a weapon that no one can, can put up a defense against. He has won, and, that, and so we can live into our redemption, into our salvation without fear, because we serve the king who is almighty, all-powerful, the horn of salvation. Our God has saved us powerfully. And last, I make the argument that he has saved us prophetically. Uh, There's a lot of prophecy referenced to in this passage. Just as he spoke by the mouths of his holy prophets in ancient times, he has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant. Uh, And then he, talking about John the Baptist, he is called a prophet of the Most High. He was sending John the Baptist in preparation of the Savior. In our society, I think that... So so prophecy really goes back to God saying that he's going to do something and then... It being done through Jesus. Okay, so God making a promise that He's going to do something, and then it being done. I think in our society that we are kind of jaded or calloused or whatever you want to say to leaders saying things and then not carrying it out. There's actually a website called uh, Politifact.com to keep track of all the politicians' promises. Um, I'm not a political person, but I think it's interesting to go on there and see like what's actually happened, what's not, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but we are have become accustomed to people in power. Just like, oh, they said it. We'll see what happens. You know, he said that my student loans will be forgiven, but we'll see. You know, didn't happen. <laughs> um, Gen Z problems. But Zechariah here offers a fact check for God. He looks back and sees what God said, and is talking about how He is carrying out, carrying it out through His sons, through the prophets. God had promised that his Messiah would come from the house of David. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And this is happening through the coming of the Messiah, through God sending his son. Not only do I want us to see that God's prophecy and plans of old stay true to his word, but in John the Baptist, his salvation is carried out prophetically. Like, even right before Jesus comes, he sends someone to say some things for him to fulfill. Like, he sends someone to make a promise on his behalf for him to fulfill. And God kept his promise because Jesus came. Jesus saved us. He did it. So we, I think that we are jaded to hearing things, hearing people tell us that they're going to do things, and then, yeah, it might not happen. It might happen. You know, who knows? God, when he says he's going to do something, he does it. It's good stuff. God's prophetic salvation shows us that he is a God that keeps his promises. What if we had a God other than a God who is a promise keeper? God has promised that He'll help me when I'm tempted, but will He do so? He's He's promised to forgive me when I succumb to t- temptation, but was God really telling the truth? God has promised to walk with me in the struggles of life, but was He really telling the truth? God promised me a home with Him after this life, but was, is that is that real? Yes, the God that we serve is a promise keeper. And you can look back in the first two thirds of the book and see all the things that he he said and look at how he carried them out through his son, Jesus Christ. He's a God who keeps his word. So like Zechariah, this Christmas, I hope that you can look back on stories like this, that you can read your Bibles, read Scripture, and look back and give give you confidence for your future, for your walk with God, give you confidence that God is going to do what he said he can do. And this, obviously, this is directly applied to God's salvation. And and like I said earlier, we continually need saving. We continually can lean on this. This is good stuff. This is like we went to a preaching conference a couple weeks ago and, and, the guy, and the guy described it like, these are diamonds that I'm trying to show you guys. Like this is as real, as strong, as good as it gets. You can like stand on this word. It's going to happen. Your God will not forsake you. So we need to lean on the promises of God. We need to look back in order to move forward with confidence. Look back at our powerful God and father who sent his son that we could have life to live into our Christian life. So where does this, like why? Why understand this? Why reflect on this? Why remember? Why rehearse these truths um, about our salvation? What's the point? I see in this passage that it creates things in our life, and I'm not gonna have any more slides, but I have three things that I think that this creates in our life if we rehearse God's salvation to us, that he saved us um, presently, powerfully, and prophetically. And the first is our the understanding of our place in God's story, like what I was saying earlier, Zechariah Zechariah, it's with the E, and Elizabeth were barren. They had no kids, and they were old. And then God blessed them with kids. God, give us a child. God, give us a child. I know that people in this room can sympathize with that. God, give us a child. And God gives them a child. And yet his praise is not, God, thank you so much for blessing me with a kid. Thank you so much for for giving me something to do now. Thank you so much for giving me a child. But God, thank you for salvation. Thank you for carrying out your purposes in giving us and blessing us with a child. He's, He's Picture in the story, his place in the story isn't. He's not celebrating just having something, not just having what God gave him, but but God using him in His story. He's praising God for salvation. He's not praising God for the thing He's given him. This is a good reminder about our lives. Just thinking through our salvation and our place in God's story. It's not just thank you, God, for saving me, so I can be me. It's thank you, God, for saving me, so that I can be a part of Your kingdom. I can be a part of Your story. And we have lots of parents in the room. Lots of too soon-to-be parents in the room. This can help us reflect on our purpose in our children's lives. We're being used by God. We're not being given something to just like, I'm going to create a football player <laughs> or I'm going to create whatever you want your kid to be. I'm here to be used as a vessel of God to form this child into, into a disciple. And for, to figure out what he, from me and my wife, we are expecting a child for what he ought to do, how he ought to be a part of the kingdom. And so first, reflecting, understanding, meditating on how God has saved us helps us to understand our place in God's story. Second, doing these things puts us in the way of peace, in the path of peace. That it says that he, um, it says that Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. When God shines light in the midst of darkness, it's because of his tender mercy, because of our God's merciful compassion. He loves you that he won't let you live in the shadows. If God didn't care about you, He would leave you to your own devices. He would leave you to figure stuff out on your own. He would leave you without himself. He wouldn't convict you of sin. He wouldn't give you a conscience. He wouldn't give you that sting in your heart from the Holy Spirit. He wouldn't speak to you in his word. He would say, so be it. Do what you want to do. And that's the ultimate punishment from God, right? In Romans 1, he said he gave them over to their depraved minds and hearts and lusts. He said, you want to be in darkness? Live in darkness. That is the worst punishment that we could have is being in darkness. But because God saved us, we are not in darkness. Amen. Amen? God has shown a light unto our, unto our feet. He has given us a path to walk on. He gives us wisdom. And because, because we are saved, because we are, are his. So we understand our place in his story. We get to be in his path of peace. He, get to, he his shines his light on our path. And lastly, we respond with rich praise and worship. That's what this whole passage is. Zechariah was silent for nine months. What would you do if you were silent for nine months? Some of you would be like, great, I, that would be ideal life for me. Some of you introverts. But I'm an extrovert. If I don't talk for a whole day, like I, I go crazy. I, like I, and so nine months of, of not talking, I would, I would list off all the things I've been thinking of. I'd probably have the idea to start a crazy, cool business or whatever. But the first things that come out of his mouth, well, first... Earlier in the passage, he does say that I will name my son Zechariah, not after myself. But the second thing he says is, is he's praising God's salvation. He's praising God for salvation. He explodes in rich praise and worship. Not, oh man, I missed this guy, I need to go talk to him. No, I missed this guy, or right. I really needed to, to, to get this out to Elizabeth. But no, it's rich praise and, and worship for God's saving work in his life. And that's what we're, that's, we do that every week. We respond in communion. That's what worship is. is a response to God's goodness, his character, what he's done. Um, but this is what we do. To, this is how we ought to live our lives is in response with rich praise and worship as modeled by Zechariah's prophecy. Every Sunday we take communion. Um, and later on in Luke 22, it says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So we take communion in response to God's salvation. God came as a baby, Jesus was a baby, lived a perfect life in an imperfect world, and then died for us so that we can have life. And that's why we take communion to remember what he did for us every Sunday. Our greatest need is salvation. And not just the fact of being saved, but for us to have been Christians for a long time. I just celebrated my 10-year Christian anniversary last month. Praise God that He has saved me. But not just the fact that being not just remember the fact of being saved, but really stewing in it and letting God save us continually. I'm not saying to go zip your mouth shut like God did to Zechariah for nine months to actually do this for real. But I am saying that we should reflect on God's saving work often and in quiet and regularly and to ourselves and rehearse the gospel to ourselves because it's good news, right? It's great news. God has saved us. He saved you presently, powerfully and prophetically and you can lean on his word and trust that he is going to fulfill his word. So my encouragement to you this Christmas season is just at some point meditate, be quiet, let the realities of God's saving work become what celebrating Christmas is about for you this season. Let me pray for you guys. Jesus, thank you so much for saving us. Thank you for the Advent season and giving us a time to remember that you came, God. that You came as a baby in a manger and lived a perfect life in an imperfect world, God, so that we could have life, so that we could be in communion with you, so that we would be saved. God, we love you. And, and again, we just ask that you remind us of these truths often, remind us of these truths powerfully, and that these truths would give us confidence to live this Christian life, God, to live a life unto you. It's in Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen.